Good morning. Happy Sabbath. I'm glad that you've decided to join us today at the Williams Lake Seventh-day Adventist Church. You could have chosen to be anywhere else, but this morning you chose to worship with us, and we are glad that you decided to do so. And so this morning, before we begin, I have four favors that I usually ask uh, before I preach. And the first one has to do with your cell phone. Now, I understand we're living in a little bit of different times, and, and some of you may be using your cell phone right now, especially to watch. But if you're not, I'd like to ask you to turn it off with me uh, so that this way there is no distraction. There is nothing that will uh, divert your mind from what it should be on, and what it should be on should be the Word of God. So I'd like to ask you to completely turn it off and to use an actual Bible as we will be studying today. Uh, this way you will not be distracted by a text, a tweet, a notification, a message, or whatever can you know, get in the way. The second thing I'd like to ask you is for you to pray. I need you to pray for me that whatever I may be speaking this morning will be directly from God. And you need to be praying for yourself also that you may receive the anointing to be able to understand, to hear, and to know what this message is about. The third thing is I need you to think. God said, let us come together, let us reason together. God is a God of reason, is a, is a God that asks us to think and not to be simply mindlessly listening and not understand or not think through the things that are being said or not thinking through the scripture. We need to think together, so please do that. And finally, the last thing I would ask of you is after we're done here, uh, the message might be ended, but you're not done and I'm not done because now we have to go and study whatever we've listened to today. So when we're done, go study, go further, go deep, dig deeper as to what we've talked about today. So before we go any further, let us pray together. Father, Lord, I come to you this morning to first to thank you. For Lord, you are good, and you are great, and you are wonderful. You, Father, have sustained me, you've sustained all of us through this week, that we may be present right here, right now, before you. Father, this morning I present myself to you knowing how unworthy I am to handle the word of truth, the word of scripture. And so for this cause, Father, I am, I am asking and I'm begging and I'm pleading for your forgiveness, for your cleansing, for you to remove any sins that I may have at this time, Lord, that I may be pure before you. Please, Lord, give me the righteousness of Jesus. And I ask also, Lord, for your Holy Spirit to be upon me, to be my guide, my teacher, to speak through me. And Father, I want to pray to, for all those that are listening right now, that their hearts and their minds might also be cleansed and open to receive, Lord, the words, that it may impact them, that it may convict them, that it may change their heart. Father, we need a change of heart. And so, Lord, this morning, I, I pray that your will be done, that your, your word may beget us anew. I ask, Father, for your Holy Spirit to be in every home around the world, every home that is listening at this time. 
Father, let no men, no words of men come out. Let only the words from the throne be heard this morning. And I thank you, Father, for all that you have done, all that you will be doing, all the blessings that you have in store. I thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness, and I thank you for Jesus. It is in his name, in the name of our Lord, our Savior, and our righteousness, Jesus, that I pray. Amen. This morning, I, I want to start with a, a few quotations from the spirit of prophecy. And our first one that is very familiar is from the book Life Sketches, page 196, paragraph 2. It says, we have nothing to fear for the future except as we shall forget the way the Lord has led us and his teaching in our past history. This fabulous quote reminding us to always look back how God has been leading us personally, but also in our movement as Seventh-day Adventists, so that we may understand that he is in charge of the future and that nothing that is happening right now is beyond his grasp, beyond his knowledge, and that he is still in charge and in control. Now, of course, one of the most defining points in the history of our church has to be the year 1844, when Jesus entered the final phase of his um, atonement, of when, he en- when he's in the heavenly sanctuary and entered into the most holy place. It is such an important date, such a foundational date, and I find it alarming when I speak to certain people who tells me that this date means nothing. They, they totally deny that date and they come to the conclusion that nothing happened in 1844. Meaning that Jesus did not enter the most holy place, that the day of atonement, the day of judgment did not begin, that nothing has happened. And that makes me realize that they are indeed forgetting the way that the Lord has led us. And really, all that is left is a fearful look for the future. But the reason I bring this up is that we we have to understand that every time God moves, every time there is something that happens, every time God makes something, the enemy has a countermeasure, a counterattack, a counter fit. Now, you, you may be aware of this, but Jesus is not the only one who made a move in 1844. It was in that very year in 1844 that a man named Charles Darwin completed the, his first draft, his first essay on evolution. That's right, in 1844, several years later, he would complete his book called The Origin of Species. And I find that very interesting. In the years leading to 1844, the first angel's message was preached, a message that that takes us back to the worship of the Creator, while at the same time, leading to the year 1844, there was another movement that would conceptualize an idea that would give full swing to the denial of the Creator. Now, I'm I'm not really here to talk about evolution, but I do want to touch on one of the concepts, which is called survival of the fittest, 
Then you'll understand why in a moment. It's very interesting. The basic idea of this theory is to explain natural selection, which theorizes that the species with the best qualities, the best attribute, the best skill to adapt better to its environment will be the one most likely to survive, and this is proven by its reproductive success. In other words, and I quote here, survival of the form, and pay attention because we'll come back to that, survival of the form that will leave the most copies of itself in successive generations. That is the idea behind survival of the fittest. Now, what I find super interesting about this is when we look at this whole thing, this whole idea, the ones that would be the fittest in our time would not be the big predators because they're not the one that reproduces the most, but rather it would be the life form at the bottom, planktons, insects, mosquitoes, right? We have them by the billions, mackerel, sardines. They're the one that reproduces again, by billion, while human beings would be one of the most unfit to survive because we don't reproduce as much. And so that is very interesting in itself. Now, of course, the, the whole concept is strictly based on physical and temporal, but what we don't realize is that this concept also applies in the spiritual realm. That's right. There is also a model, if you will, of survival of the fittest. And I put that in quotation mark. Now we'll come back to that. Let me give you a few more Spirit of Prophecy quotes. Science of the Times, December 30, 1889. Through the atonement of the Son of God alone could power be given to man to establish him in righteousness and make him a fit subject for heaven. Again, that same concept in, in Testimonies for the Church, volume 2, page 81. Jesus will receive you, all polluted as you are, and will wash you in his blood and cleanse you from all pollution and make you fit for the society of heavenly angels in a pure, harmonious heaven. And finally, Review and Herald, April 28, 1891 says, we must not be taken up with pleasure and amusement, but be fitting up for the glorious mentions Christ has gone to prepare for us. You see, God is right now in the process of making us fit for heaven. Now, uh, let, let me clarify something right from the get-go, because I, I know the sermon is, is entitled Survival of the Fittest, but it is not the fittest that make it to heaven, okay? It is not the fittest. It is those that are fit, period. Not, there's, no, there's nothing else. It's just those that are fit. There is no fitter and there is no fittest that makes it to heaven. It's either fit or not fit or unfit. That's it. God is in the process of making us fit for heaven. Now, we can talk about being fitted in different ideas. For example, the idea of um, like you have a puzzle, right? And there's a, there's a piece that fits specifically in an area and no other piece fits there. And that is true. But I'd like to give you another example. And that is 
in the idea of fitness. When we look at certain men, certain women, we, we look at them and we, we can tell this person is fit. You, you can see that this person is fit, but fit for what? Because that makes a difference. For example, let's say I take a, a soccer player. Would you agree that a soccer player is fit? Yeah, absolutely. A soccer player is fit. He plays his game and he's good at it. But if I put some skate on him and give him a stick with a puck and make him play hockey, will he be as fit for playing that game? Probably, maybe, but probably not. I mean, juggling a puck with a stick is different than juggling a ball with your feet. Uh, give me another example. Um, a swimmer. Are swimmer fit? Absolutely, they're in great shape, they're fit, they're swimming like crazy. But if I take that same fit person, putting, put him on the mat and have him do gymnastics, would that person be fit to do gymnastics? Probably not. And the reverse is true. Even if I take a gymnast and throw him in the water, he probably would not be as good as a professional swimmer, right? The, the point that I'm trying to make here is there is, yes, a general fitness, but there is also a specific fitness. And God is specifically, specifically fitting us for one purpose, and that's for heaven. That is what God is specifically fitting us for. So now let's turn to our Bible and let's see that principle. Let's go now to the book of Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. And we're going to go toward the end of the chapter. Luke chapter 9. And we're going to begin in verse 57 of Luke chapter 9. And it says, And it came to pass that as they went in the way, a certain man said unto him, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus said unto him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. And he said unto another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. And Jesus said unto him, Let the dead bury their dead, but go thou and preach the kingdom, the, preach the kingdom of God. Now I'm just going to pause here because a lot of time we... We read that passage, and I, and I hear people read that passage, and, and they, they're kind of hard on Jesus. Because they say, how can Jesus be so cruel and not let this man bury his father? You know what we do when we say that is we make a grave assumption. Actually, we make two assumptions. The first assumption is we, we assume that Jesus is not fair or good, which is completely against his character. Jesus is not like that. But the other assumption that we also make is that the man's father is dead. Do you really think that if the man's father was dead, Jesus would tell him, don't go bury your father? No, the idea here is that he's saying, please let me wait until my father dies that I may bury him. And that could have taken years for that to happen. And what Jesus is saying is that, no, now is the time to make your decision. And that's the idea behind it. So, you know, let's not make assumption when we read the scripture. Uh, next verse, it says, And another also said, Lord, I will follow thee, but let me first go bid them farewell, which are at home and my house. Again, the same principle. I want to go, but I'm not ready to give up my home life and my family. Let me first stay with them a little longer. And Jesus, again, is saying, no, you got to go now. 
And Jesus said unto him, No man, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is what? Is fit for the kingdom of God. This idea of fitness here. Jesus establishes the fact that you cannot be fitted for heaven if your heart or if your mind and if your desire are still fully grounded on earth. If your desire are earthly, your aspiration are earthly, heaven must be first and foremost. We all know this verse, Matthew 6, 33. And Jesus said, and seek ye, what? First, the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. What does it mean to seek first? Why does Jesus say seek first? Because Jesus is saying you need to make this a priority in your life. It has to be the first thing that comes in everything that you do, meaning that whatever you, whatever activity you decide to engage in, whatever words you decide to speak, whatever food you decide to eat, whatever you do, the priority should be asking yourself, is this getting me to heaven? Is this helping me acquire the righteousness of Jesus or not? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Luke 14 Luke 14, we'll begin reading in verse 33. Same principle. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if the salt have lost its favor, wherewith shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land, nor yet for the dunghill, but man cast it out, and he that had ears to hear, let him hear. Again, the same principle, the same idea. We, when we accept Christ, when we accept Jesus, we're supposed to be like salt. But if we, along the way, we stop being flavorful to the world in holy things, we're no longer fit to be in heaven. So, clearly, There's this concept and idea in Scripture that we need to be fit to be in heaven. It's either we're fit for that or we're not fit for it. There's only two choices. And what I want to do this morning is, with these ideas in mind, I want to look at two great deceptions from the enemy in trying to unfit us for heaven. Now, of course, I'm not going to leave you in in, in that despair. I'm going to show you how God is counteracting this, uh, these attacks, these deceptions to actually fit us for heaven. So we're going to look at the first one, which is found in Matthew chapter 7. And and keep in mind that as we're we're talking about, about these different things, the whole idea of survival of the fittest It should be in the back of your mind, like the definition that we read about having qualities and abilities to survive and and to outperform everyone for the order of reproducing and surviving because we're fitter. These ideas, um, I don't even want to call them principle, but I guess they are in that concept, have actually permeated so much of the world out there that we don't even realize 
that we might have them in our lives. Matthew 7, beginning in verse 21. It says, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say, now pay attention, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devil, and in thy name done many wondrous work. <clears throat> Sorry. And so here these people are coming and they're saying, Lord, we've been working for you. We've been doing ministry for you. We've been pastoring. We've been elder. We've been doing door to door. We've been preaching the gospel. We've been healing the sick. We've been doing all these great things. We even cast out devils. Right? We've been passing literature out there. We've, I've told my neighbor, my parents, everybody that I ever met to follow Jesus. I've done all these things. And Jesus says, and then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Now pause for a moment. Jesus is saying, I never knew you. Question. Does God, does Jesus know everything? Absolutely. Is there anything that he doesn't know? Well, clearly, according to this verse, there is something that he doesn't know, but it's not because he does not intellectually know the existence of these people. You see, in order for Jesus to not know you or to not know something, he has to make a conscious effort to not know, to ignore, to not bring into remembrance. He has to make an effort to do that. So when he comes here and he says, I never knew you, he's making a sad effort to not know that person. Why is that? Why is it that these people, he doesn't know? Why is it that they've done all these great work, he doesn't know them? Why is it that these people are in that situation? It says, he continues saying, depart from me, ye that work iniquity. It doesn't matter how much great work you and I do. If we continue to sin, we're not going to make it to heaven. We are not going to continue. We're not going to be able to enter the gates of heaven. This, this first deception of Satan I called self-deception. It's to think that we will get to heaven in full knowledge that we continue to sin. Now, this is not a new concept. This concept was brought about by Satan himself. I'll show you that in the book of Genesis, chapter 3. <clears throat> From the very beginning, the very first lie that Satan ever spoke. Genesis, chapter 3. We're beginning in verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, 
neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said unto the woman, you shall not surely die. For God does know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil, meaning experiencing good and evil, committing good and committing evil, you'll be like God and you will not die. The first greatest sin that Satan ever told is you can sin and live. You can continue to sin and still live. You can be in your sin and have eternal life. If that was the case, why did Jesus have to die? 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I want to hammer this up with Paul's writing. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Verse 9 and 10, it says, Know ye not, question, don't you know, know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Paul is saying, look, don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. I think that's pretty clear. And this is not an exhaustive list. This is just some of the things that he's bringing to the Corinthians saying these types of people, these practitioners of sin will not be in heaven. You know, the, it's amazing that the thing that, the, the thing that got us in this mess in the first place, which is sin, is now taught to us that it's not a big deal, that we can continue doing that. Jesus has died for it anyway, so keep on sinning. Well, in fact, that's <laughs> the thing that got us removed from the garden is the very same thing that's going to keep us out of heaven let us not be deceived sin is the problem that needs to be overcome now <clears throat> don't have fear because i'm going to come back to this very point where we're going to talk about god's countermeasure i'm not going to leave you in despair right here but i want to talk to you about the second deception and the second deception, and, and <laughs> don't get upset with me, you'll understand as I go on, is self-confidence. Let's go to Revelation chapter 3. And let's look at self-confidence in action, if you will. Chapter 3, we'll begin reading <clears throat> in verse 14. It says, and unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, write, these things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot, so then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee 
out of my mouth. Now, question. <clears throat> if God, the, the word spew here actually means vomit. Okay, if God is going to vomit you out of his mouth, does that look that you're like, like you and I, if we get vomited out of the mouth of God, does, does that look like we're going to be in heaven? Does that, 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 does that look like a condition favorable for heavenly citizenship? Yeah, I, I don't think so. And then he goes on saying, Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. See, this is one of, of the most dangerous deception. <clears throat> By the way, just a, a side note here. The, this represents the last day church, the Laodicean church, the church of the end time. And you know that description? That's me and that's you. That is our church. That is the Seventh-day Adventist church. Spirit of Prophecy, Ellen White made the first statement that the church was lukewarm, was Laodicean, was back in 1852. 1852. If you count from 1844, that's only eight years. Eight years after the, the great event of 1844 took place, Ellen White made the statement, our church is Laodiceans. Our church is lukewarm. You and I are in a church, we as an individual, we are in the process of being spewed out of the mouth of God because we are lukewarm. And you see the problem, <clears throat> the problem is, is, is what God says. It says, God says, thou sayest, now he's making a statement that we're making a statement. Thou sayest, I am rich and increase with good, and I have need of nothing. I have all I need. I'm good. I'm all right. I have everything. I don't need everything. I'm doing well. Everything's awesome. I, I, I can't complain about anything. And yet, God, in his estimation, says, Thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So now we have a problem. Because we say we're good. We are right. And God says, no, 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 you're wretched, you're miserable, you're blind, you're poor, you're naked. You're not all right. You're not good. You're not fine. And so, really, God says, you don't know your true condition. Thou knowest not that thou art wretched, poor, miserable, blind, uh, and naked. You don't realize that. It's, uh, <clears throat> you don't realize how unfit you are for heaven. I don't realize how not all right I am. Because, you know, if you and I, we did, if we realized our condition, we would be weeping. We would be alarmed. We would be scared. We would be frightened for the future. Because we are wretched 
and miserable and poor and blind and naked. And no wretched, miserable, poor, blind and naked person enter heaven. But we don't know because we're lukewarm. We're, we're comfortable. In times of trials and adversity, faith flourishes, but in time of ease, faith weathers away. Do you have to, uh, you have to fight for your faith? Do you have to like struggle every day for your faith? Are, are, you, uh, are you agonizing to live up to your conviction? Or is life pretty easy going? I mean, uh, a, little bit, bit, a little bit more than a year ago, we would just come to church and sit and, you know, it's comfortable. I mean, we have nobody outside, you know, with pitchfork and trying to set the church on fire. And now, aren't we even more comfortable at home, in our pajamas, in front of the screen, watching the guy talk? I did that too. But do you understand the ease we have in our spiritual life? The ease we have in our religion? That is lukewarmness. That is comfortable. And now with, with this whole pandemic, isolation, quarantine, you know, wear masks two feet away. We can't even go and witness anymore. We can't come to church and gather. We can't be out there witnessing. We're, it's, at least one-on-one, it's, it's like we're all islands now. Nobody persecutes. And... The thing that I've come now to realize about the, the Laodicean state is that no matter how many times you call it out, it just doesn't go away. It just doesn't go away because the, the deception is comfort. You're comfortable. Why would you want to get out of your comfort zone? It's comfortable. It's easy. It's fine. But you know that comfort is the death of thriving if you're comfortable most likely not thriving listen the most fit person to ever live for heaven was jesus he was the most fit person for heaven and and what was his like life life of trial life of toil life of persecution John 15, I, I, I want this to sink in. John 15, beginning in verse 18. Jesus speaking, it sa he says, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, in other words, if you were lukewarm, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, because you are not lukewarm, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hated you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecuted you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. Now, don't try... <laughs> Don't try to overcome your Laodiceanness by going out there and getting yourself hated and persecuted. 
Okay, that's not how you fix the Laodicean uh, problem. There is a solution to that. God has a countermeasure. But the point that I'm trying to make is that if you are lukewarm, if you are comfortable, you are in deception. Because you are putting your confidence in yourself. I have all these goods. I don't need anything. So then, we have a problem. Because I'm pretty sure that most of us fall in one of this deception, if not both. And so how is God going to fit us for heaven? And there's two things I want us to focus on. I mean, there's a lot more. And I could spend, we could spend like hours, days, just you know, breaking this out and finding so many things. But I want to focus on two things right now that, that God is attempting to do in order to fit us for heaven to counter those deception and, and to, you know, put to shame, if you want, this whole survival of the fittest idea by making us fit for heaven. Matthew 18. Let us turn there as we look how God will fit us for heaven. Matthew 18, verse 3. This is Jesus speaking. He said, Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted and become as little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. So what is the condition to enter heaven according to this verse? Conversion. Now, now here's the thing. It's, it's for many of us, conversion is this, this idea of the past. It's that thing that, you know, long ago, long, long time ago, we gave our heart to Jesus. We renounced the world, the sinful practices, and we, we got baptized, and, and we got converted on that day. Conversion means change. It means a complete change. Um, in, the year, in the year past, I would travel and I would go to the Philippines. I would do mission trip there, take some vacations. And I would go there and I, and I would bring my Canadian money, our, our nice, colorful Canadian money. And I would go to the Philippines and I would go to the exchange booth and I would take my money and give it to them and they would give me back Filipino money, pesos. And with that money, I could now purchase things in the Philippines. Now, this is called conversion. They converted my money, my currency from uh, my Canadian currency to my Filipino currency so that I could purchase things. Because if I would go somewhere and I would pull out my loony and give it to someone, they would, have, they would look at me really funny like, what is this? That doesn't work here. Okay? They need their own currency. And you see, what God is trying to do is he's trying to change you and me to convert us to heaven's currency. Because right now we're earthly currency and, and heaven's currency is not sin. You know what is heaven's currency? It's righteousness. God needs righteousness. That is the currency of heaven. 
Remember earlier we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 6? Let's go there. I said I wouldn't leave you um, too battered after that verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I want you to see the, the principle of conversion apply. 1 Corinthians 6, and let's start again in verse 9. It says, Know ye not that unrighteousness shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Why is it that unrighteousness cannot be in the kingdom of God? Because that's not the currency. The currency of heaven is righteousness. Unrighteousness is another word for sin. And so he goes on saying, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Paul is saying, you were like that. There was a time where you were unrighteous, but now something has happened. You were changed. You were converted. You changed your currency. You went from unrighteous to righteous. God has converted you to the currency of righteousness, and he did that through justification, which is pardon, and sanctification, which is obedience, both through grace. So God has converted those Corinthians from where they were earthly to where they are now heavenly. He forgives and he empowers. We were, they were, and we were unfit. Through the process of conversion, we can now be fit for heaven. Just a thought, conversion is not a one-time thing. Conversion is something that needs to take place every day. Every day you need to be converted. Every day you, you need to um, change your condition. Every day you need to become the currency of heaven, righteousness. The second point that God is, is trying to fit us for, for heaven through is, is this, this word. I'm sure you've heard before. It's called cooperation. Okay, there, there's a, a funny thought in the Christian world, which we're going to talk about in a moment. But even after you're converted, the danger is to become comfortable, a.k.a. lukewarm, a.k.a. Laodicean. This is a, a condition that needs to be removed so that we can constantly be thriving. And conversion, like I said, is a daily manner, ma matter, but it, it's, not, it's not once in a lifetime. It's something continuous every day. When we forget that, when we accept the status quo of I've been converted, I'm good, this is where we enter the dangerous condition of Laodicea. But God has a solution. Return to Revelation chapter 3, and we'll look at God's perfect solution to counter the Laodicean state. And this is the idea of cooperation, right there. Beginning in verse 17, 
because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Now, notice that God's solution is not to push on you the gold and, and the white raiment and the eye salve. God doesn't do that. God says, I counsel you. I'm offering you a counsel. That means that God is inviting us to make a choice. He's inviting us to choose, to take action, to put our faith into practice, to move from profession to exercising. You see, Christianity is a religion of decision-making and action-taking. It's not a religion of passivity. And a, a lot of people that have come to this conclusion that all I have to do is believe. Believe and you'll be saved. Believe that Jesus has died for you. Just believe, believe, believe. And yet the Bible says, seek ye first the kingdom of God. Have you ever saw somebody, have you ever lost your key? Yeah, let, let's, let's make it personal. Have you ever lost your key? Or anything, right? And you need to seek your keys, right? You need to search them out. You need to find them. You need to get out of the house. You need your keys, right? You look for your keys. Have you ever looked for your keys sitting down on the couch? Thinking, I'm seeking my keys actively right now. I'm seeking, I am seeking my keys. Is that how you seek for the kingdom of God? Because if you seek for the kingdom of God and his righteousness as hard and as thorough and as mindful as you do your keys, you and I would be way up ahead in the game. Jesus says, buy of me. Let's make a transaction. We're going to make an exchange here. You're going to give me your poverty, your nothingness, and I'm going to give you my gold tried in the fire. I'm going to give you my faith and love. It's true and it's tested. right? And then in exchange, you also give me your, well, you're naked, so give me your nothing. And I'm going to give you my white raiment, my righteousness, that you can be clothed in now. Okay, and now that you're blind, give me your, you're not seeing anything. And I'm going to give you eye salves. And with the eye salves, you're going to get spiritual discernment. That's the Holy Spirit. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. It's a pretty good deal. I, I give three times nothing, and he gives me three times everything I need. These are the precious commodity of heaven. These are the wares that are needed for heavenly citizenship. When, when you truly have these things, when you truly have the faith and the love of God, when you truly have the righteousness of Jesus, and when you truly have the Holy Spirit, you will no longer be from an earthly currency. 
You will be of a heavenly flavor, a heavenly currency. You will no longer fit on earth. You won't fit here anymore. You will have been fitted for heaven. And when you don't fit somewhere, what do people do? When you don't fit in, people don't like you when you don't fit in because you're different. So they persecute, they bully, they push. That's what human beings do. That's what fallen human beings do. And when Jesus was on, that's why when Jesus was here, that's why he was bullied. That's why he was tried all the time. That's why he was persecuted because he didn't fit in. No matter how human he was, he was from heavenly currency. He had the heavenly attribute. He didn't fit here. And the crowd, they might like him for a little bit as long as they got something, but didn't like him that much because at the end they said crucify him. The religious leader didn't like him because he was so different from them. And they also wanted him to be crucified. And when we are at that stage, we're going to be in the same situation as Jesus was and the Laodicean stage will come to an end. And now we will no longer be vomit. We will be fitted for heaven. So here's what I was trying to bring up this morning, the idea that I was bringing up. God is trying, trying hard to fit us for heaven. In fact, he's, he's given us everything that is needed for us to be fit for heaven. Now, remember this idea of survival of the fittest? It says it's a survival of the form that will leave the most copies of itself in successive generation. And I thought that was such an interesting statement. Copies of themselves for the following generation. Image of themselves imprinting on, their, on, on the following generation. For me, that is such an incredible counterfeit. Christ's object lesson. Christ. Listen, Christ is seeking to reproduce himself in the hearts of men. And he does this through those who believe in him. The object of the Christian life is fruit-bearing, the reproduction of Christ's character in the believer that it may be reproduced in others. I'm amazed at how this whole survival of the fittest thing is a perfect counterfeit to what God is trying to do, to fit us for heaven, to have his character imprinted in us, in our minds, in our heart, completely changed, converted, so that he can fit us for heaven. Christ, uh, Christ Object Lesson 69, Christ is waiting with longing desire for the manifestation of himself in his church, in the Laodicean church, when the character of Christ shall be perfectly, what's that word? Perfectly reproduced in his people. Then he will come to claim them as his own. 
The fitness that God is trying to have, the, the way we can measure our fitness is Jesus. When his character, his righteousness is perfectly reproduced in us, then, then the fitness for heaven is complete. And only then will he be able to come and claim us as his own. But as long as long as we, as long as we are self-deceived and self-confident, we are not fit for heaven. We need to be converted. We need to be changed completely. And then when the change takes place, we need to cooperate with God so that he continues to fit us and to form us in the likeness of his son. We need to get the gold. We need to get the white raiment. We need to get the eye salves. We need these things to be fitted for heaven. And so here it is. We have two opposing, contradicting views and ideas. One based on deception to keep you in sin, to keep you lukewarm, and to fit you for destruction. The other is based on victory and righteousness to fit you for heaven. And so you and I have to make a choice because the first one, guess what, demands no effort at all. Just keep going. No effort needed. Stay comfortable. Don't make changes. You and I, we're going to be perfectly fitted for this. The other demands submission to God through the process of repentance and conversion and cooperation with Him in a life of active righteousness and righteous living. That demands effort. That means stepping out of the lukewarmness. That means making the transaction with God, making the exchange with Him. And these, these are the choices. That's it. Where do you want to be fit for? Where do I want to be fit for? It's one of the two. It's the only two choices. No one is going to force you. No one is going to push you to make a choice. You and I, we need to make a choice. And then we need to commit. And we need to follow through. God gave us everything to make the right choice. And if we come at the end and he says, I never knew you, we will have no excuse. We will not be able to say to him, you didn't do everything because he did. And my prayer this morning is that you and I look at this seriously that we will indeed seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and allow him to fit us for heaven let's make the right choice this morning let's pray together oh father lord
How good are you? Words cannot even express it. Lord, we have totally unfitted ourselves for heaven. But you, Father, you are not abandoning us. You're not giving up. Thank you, Lord. I ask now, Father, that you, through your Spirit, convict the hearts of men and women and children out there. That, Lord, they may come to you for change, for everything they need. Father, please give us your love, your faith. Give us the righteousness of Jesus. Give us the Holy Spirit. Father, fit us for heaven now. I plead with you, Lord. I pray that we are all pleading together. Help us, Lord, because we cannot help ourselves. Forgive us, Lord, for ever doubting that you have done everything, for ever doubting that, Lord, you are working on our behalf. Help us, Lord, to cooperate. Help us to walk in your will and to do your bidding. Thank you, Father, for your patience and for your goodness toward us. I pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, and our righteousness. Amen.